the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Amenadab and Amenadab, the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Salmon and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. I read this week uh, in an article from the Wall Street Journal that there is a relatively decent chance that some of you in this room are direct descendants of the Mayflower pilgrims. Um, Historians tell us that 26 of the 102 people who traveled in the Mayflower across the Atlantic in 1620 and celebrated the first Thanksgiving had children who had children who had children. And today, centuries later, 25 million Americans are direct descendants of those 26 People, which means there's a chance that some of you are a direct descendant of those who came over on the Mayflower. So congratulations, you should probably throw a party for yourself or something if you didn't know that about yourself. I found that to be a really interesting story. One of the reasons things like that interest people, I think, is because lineages are still something that matter to us. We like to know where we come from. From. And especially if we have well-known people in our family tree, we like to tell people about it. You know, depending on what part of the country you live in, that is something you'll hear a lot. Texans 
Apparently, every Texan is a descendant of Sam Houston. Did you all know that? Every Texan says they're a descendant of Sam Houston. When we lived in Philadelphia, every Philadelphian was a descendant of Benjamin Franklin, which is weird because I don't think he had any children. He might have, but uh, that's weird. In the South, all my friends in the South are descended from Stonewall Jackson. It's just something that we like to know about and sometimes brag on our ancestors, our family tree even though sometimes, you know, we usually just make it up. Um, Family trees are important. They're important for us even now. But they were even more important to a first century Jewish person like Matthew, the author of this gospel. In an ancient culture, like the one in which the New Testament was written, a genealogy was a vital part of one's identity. Who your family is was a massive piece of who you are. And that's one of many reasons why Matthew begins his gospel, this book, and why the New Testament itself begins with this genealogy, with the family tree of Jesus. We're beginning, as I mentioned, a study of Matthew's gospel today, and it's going to take us all the way through the year 2024, 28 chapters of Matthew. We're going to work our way through because I felt like it was time for us to spend time looking at the life of Jesus in a gospel. In our time as a church, we studied the gospel of Mark. We studied the gospel of John. Now we'll study the gospel of Matthew and perhaps, Lord willing, one day the gospel of Luke, the best for last, of course. And um, there's a couple of things I want you to know about Matthew that are distinctive about Matthew and his gospel. Uh, Three things. First, Matthew's gospel is, it's the most Jewish. It's the most Jewish of the four gospels. That is, it's more focused than Mark or Luke or John on showing that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew's primary original audience were his Jewish brothers and sisters because he wanted them to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Old Testament Israel. So Matthew's the most Jewish of the Gospels. It's also the most focused on Jesus's teaching, uh, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which is three full chapters in Matthew and without question, the most famous teaching that Jesus ever gave. So as we seek in the next year to follow Jesus more faithfully, we're going to listen to his authoritative life-changing teaching through Matthew's gospel. And then the last thing, Matthew's gospel is distinct because it's the most missionary. Um, The gospel is intended to go to the ends of the earth, which Matthew, more than any of the other writers of gospels, makes clear. He ends the gospel with what is known as the Great Commission, one of the most famous missionary texts in all of the Bible. And as we've talked about this morning already, the the first four weeks uh, during this season of Advent, we're going to look at the first couple of chapters of Matthew. And um, Advent, as I've said, reminds us that we live in the the in-between, in the already, not yet. We're in between the two comings of Jesus. He's already come once, but he's not yet come again to make all things new. And so this is a season, Advent, of both reflecting on his first coming, which of course points us to Christmas, and, and also it's a season of looking to and longing for his second coming. Which is why some of our scripture readings, like the one we heard this morning, are going to be about the second coming as we light these candles. So as we begin with Advent, 
And as we begin with Matthew and look at these very foreign, strange names, uh, let me show you three principles that we can learn from Jesus's family tree. Three principles that really summarize in some ways all of Matthew's gospel. First, this genealogy teaches us the principle of grace. The principle of grace. God gives grace to sinful people. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far does he take our sins away. God is a God who gives undeserved favor to rebels because he loves sinners and has sent Jesus to redeem sinners. Grace is all over Matthew and it's all over this genealogy. Where? Where is grace here? All I saw were a bunch of very weird names. Well, first off, remember what a genealogy was. A genealogy, excuse me, was a way of introducing yourself. It was a way for an ancient person to say, this is who I am. These are my people. And so a family tree full of upstanding and righteous people would have been impressive. In fact, we know from history that a number of important political figures, even people like Herod the Great, who makes his way into the story of the New Testament, had names scratched out of their genealogy. Some of you are like, can we figure that out? I'd like to know how to do that. They had names taken out of their genealogy so that later in life, when people read about them and their deeds, they would be seen as more impressive and more regal to their subjects and to those who would come after them. And so if Matthew wanted to impress his Jewish readers, and if he wanted to try to prove to them that Jesus of Nazareth really is the Messiah, you would think he would place into his genealogy the most impressive list of Jewish fathers and mothers possible. And we do see some of that. But as we move through all of these names, what becomes even clearer is this. Matthew goes out of his way here. He goes out of his way to highlight the unimpressive and even scandalous figures in Jesus's family tree. Where do we see that? Well, there are women listed here. There are women in this ancient Jewish genealogy. And listen, that by itself is strange. That was extremely rare to list women in any ancient genealogy because women weren't valued, frankly, and they weren't seen as important. But there's more to it even than that. The women listed by Matthew are not the women that were normally trotted out to impress. In fact, in Jewish teaching, there are traditionally four matriarchs of the Jewish people. There's Sarah, Abraham's wife. There's Rebecca, Isaac's wife. And then there's the two sisters, Rachel and Leah. But we see none of those names in this genealogy. Instead of naming these women, Matthew gives us four other women. Verse 3, there's Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab. Again, verse 5, Ruth. And verse 6, Bathsheba. But he doesn't call her Bathsheba. He calls her the wife of Uriah. Now, each of these women were not just women, although that in itself is noteworthy. They were all foreign, non-Jewish women. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab 
was a Jerichoite, Ruth was a Moabite, and Bathsheba was a Hittite by marriage. She was married to Uriah the Hittite. But there's even more than that. These are four non-Jewish women, all of whom, to one degree or another, are associated with massive scandal. Have you read these Bible stories lately? Don't do it for your Advent devotional. Uh, Genesis 38 is where we read about Tamar who tricked her father-in-law, Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, into an incestuous relationship to get a child for herself and for him just because he had promised her that. Rahab was a sex worker, a prostitute in the ancient city of Jericho. Ruth, pretty great, but a little aggressive on the threshing floor there with Boaz. And um, Matthew doesn't name Bathsheba. He calls her the wife of Uriah because her affair with King David began the downfall of David's reign as king. Listen, spending time on this genealogy gives us the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them into this historical record. Why would he do that? Here's why. Because Matthew couldn't wait to preach the gospel to his readers. Because Matthew believed in and wanted to highlight grace. Listen, the gospel teaches that God can use not only non-Israelite Gentiles, but that he can forgive and overcome and work through any and all sinners for his great purposes in history. The double scandal of Gentile women and sinful women in a gospel directed primarily to Jews in the very first few verses of the gospel gives Matthew the chance to highlight what he can't wait to write about. God's divine mercy extends to racial outsiders, it extends to moral outsiders, it extends to the broken, the hurting, the sinful, the corrupt, and the rebellious. Jesus is the kind of person who's not ashamed of sinners. In fact, they're put in his family tree. This genealogy, among other things, teaches us the heart of our faith. Do you know what the heart of Christianity is? It's that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what Christmas, that's what Advent, that's what all of this is about. He came to dwell with us sinners. He came to be close to us sinners. He came to identify with us sinners. I read this week about a man named Chris Rotonda who lived in a county in which the animal humane society was facing significant struggles. They had a lack of funding and they had a limited number of volunteers. And so Chris, being a man of, I guess, some passion for animals, packed rice cakes and protein bars and prepackaged meals and an ample supply of water and a pillow and a blanket and three lanterns. And he barricaded himself in a cage with different dogs at the shelter for 10 days. You're thinking, what a crazy person. And when the news interviewed him about this, he said this, quote, 
The shelters are often overlooked, and I kind of wanted to wake up the community a little more and put myself in the position of these animals to understand how solitude gets to you and how to deal with it. And it's very difficult, he said, and it gives you a different perspective. The staff employees, on his request, treated him like a dog. They took him outside for about an hour and a half a day to play and use the bathroom. And he's quoted as saying, I told the shelter, don't give me any special treatment. Treat me like a German shepherd. That's what he wanted for Christmas, apparently. He says it was hot. He couldn't shower. There were bugs. The smell of urine filled his nostrils. And the loud barking of up to 50 dogs kept him up most nights. He wanted to identify with them, though. In a similar way, Jesus shows us that God wants to identify with, dwell with, and even die for. Rebellious, hurting, and broken Sinners like me and like you. Do you know that? Do you know that? The the great duality of the gospel is seen even in this genealogy. On the one hand, your sin separates you from God because God is holy. But on the other hand, your sin draws God to you because God is so gracious. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus into the mess of this world, into the mess of your life to rescue you. Not because you deserve it, but because he loves to show mercy. That's the principle of grace. The second thing we see, the second principle is the principle of faithfulness. Faithfulness. You may have noticed as I read that um, Matthew stylizes or arranges this genealogy in a very specific way. It consists of three sections of 14 generations each. And if we look there, verses 2 through 6, the first generation goes from Abraham, the father of Israel, to the reign of King David in verse 6. And the names in between are relatively familiar to people who know their Bibles. But then the second section, verse 6, goes from David to what Matthew calls in verse 11, the deportation to Babylon. Now that is a reference to what's called the exile of the people of Israel, which you can read about in the prophets in the Old Testament and at the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And in between David in verse 6 and the exile in verse 11, what Matthew does is he lists a number of Israel's kings. And I find this very interesting. Some of them are very good, righteous, upstanding kings, but others are incredibly wicked. Just as a few examples, uh, Uzziah in verse 9 is one of the good kings, but Ahaz is also in verse 9, and you can read about him in Second Kings. He practiced human sacrifice. He killed one of his own sons. Manasseh, who you read about in 2 Kings as well, in chapter 21, the author of 2 Kings writes that Manasseh did more evil than all of the nations that the Lord drove out of Canaan. He was, as it were, the worst of the worst. Manasseh prompted the worship of idols. He murdered many innocent people. So again, Matthew doesn't leave out the worst of the worst and only include the best of the best. In his stylized recording of Jesus' family tree, he highlights some of the evil of men, even among God's chosen people. 
But did you notice? I'm sure you did as you listened to me read. There's always another generation. And God's promise to be with his people and save them stands firm because the line continues forward. That's also seen in the last of the three sections. After the exile, the line that leads to Jesus keeps going. And it's hard for us to really get how devastating the exile would have been when Babylon and earlier Assyria came and basically plundered Jerusalem and took Israel out of their land. Uh, Maybe this example will help. And this has to be qualified a little bit because the United States now is not similar really at all, especially not in the way that we're a theocracy to, to Israel in the Old Testament, but this might help us get a sense of what it would have been like. A comparison is, is if China invaded the U.S. And, and wiped out our culture and our heritage and took many of our best young leaders away to be educated in their institutions and, and destroyed most of our most important cities and killed all kinds of critical national figures and separated families from one another all over the place. For Jews in the exile, it felt to them like the end, like the end. That's why books in the Bible like Lamentations were written. And Lamentations is exactly what it sounds like. It's a lament. We see it also in some of the Psalms, like Psalm 137, verse 1, where the author in exile writes this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered our home. The exile was judgment for the sins of God's people. But here's the thing I want you to hear. Even then, in the darkest days, when it felt like God had abandoned them and the hope of a future was completely gone, Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim. The line goes on and on. And in generation after generation, God continued to sovereignly, albeit mysteriously, watch over his people, even as he punished them for their sin and rebellion. He didn't forget the promises he had made. I want you to hear this. This record reminds us that when the people of God thought everything had fallen apart, God started to put everything together again. God brought Jesus in verse 16. God keeps faith. One generation after another, God was at work. It was almost always behind the scenes. It was often unrecognized. It was often confusing and enigmatic to his people. But he did keep his promises. He was faithful. That's an important principle for us, isn't it? How easy is it for us to believe that God has forgotten us? Is there something in your life right now, a relationship or a spiritual condition you're in or a catastrophic event that has happened that is making you ask, God, are you going to show up? How long is this going to take? Why am I still in the wilderness? Why am I still in the desert? Why don't I feel your love? Why don't I sense your presence? Why is it so hard so often? There's a naive version. 
of the Christian faith that says that you will always feel God's presence. And if you don't, it's because your faith is weak or something else is wrong with you. And that is just a bold-faced lie. It's not true at all. God often feels absent and distant to those of us who are seeking to be faithful to him. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 45, surely you are a God who hides yourself. O God of Israel, the savior. Very often, maybe even especially in Advent, the mysterious absence of God is deeply felt by us. And for a long time, which is why we must hear, even when it's really hard, and even when we honestly don't really feel like we believe it, that God is faithful, that God is at work. Toward the end of World War II, um, during the liberation of Europe, uh, Allied troops found a crudely written inscription on the walls of a basement of a home in Cologne, Germany, And the inscription had been etched into the wall by someone who was, of course, hiding from the Nazi Gestapo. And here's what the inscription said. I believe in the sun, even when it is not shining. I believe in love, even when feeling it not. I believe in God, even when God is silent. You see, it's to those of us who were in the darkness, who were in the desert, who were in the dry places, The reminder of the ongoing faithfulness of God is so important. Listen, Jesus felt it too. One of the many things he said on the cross is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned, forsaken me? And the heavens were silent, giving no response. But God did faithfully answer Jesus in resurrection. And the verses in this genealogy, along with the whole story of the scripture, teach that God will faithfully answer us Two, in resurrection. That's the principle of faithfulness. We see grace. We see faithfulness. Last thing, the principle of fulfillment. The principle of fulfillment. Stick with me, okay? If there's one word that could use, be used to summarize the whole gospel of Matthew, it's that word, fulfillment. Even here, in the genealogy, we see that. Well, let me show you. We see it at the very beginning, and we see it at the very end. First, look at verse 1. Matthew opens, and the New Testament opens, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In the original language, Greek, that first line reads, not the Greek word genealogy. It actually says, the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. The book of beginnings. Jesus of Naz- Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew is very intentionally saying that this genealogy represents the book of new beginnings. The book of God fulfilling what he promised and finishing what he started. In the first Genesis, which opens the Old Testament, he created. And now, through Jesus of Nazareth, in the second Genesis, which opens the New Testament, he is recreating. It's also significant that the first two names mentioned are David and Abraham. The two great promises of the Old Testament are the promise to David of a son who would be a king forever and the promise to Abraham of a seed who would be a blessing for everyone. There's a temporal promise to David forever and there's a spatial promise to Abraham for everyone. 
And now we see that the temporal promise is fulfilled in Jesus, the son of David, and the spatial promise, remember all those Gentile women in the genealogy, is fulfilled in Jesus, the son of Abraham, who makes the covenant of God's gracious salvation available not just to Jews, but to all who will believe. For Matthew, you see, it's clear. And this is what Advent is all about too. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament is trying to say. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything written so far. Second, look at the end. Verse 17. So all the generations of Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14. What is up with that? I bet you've already asked yourself that question if you've been attentive to the text. What's up with the 14s? Well, we've already seen... um, how Matthew has very clearly and stylistically arranged this text. And it's undoubtedly selective. This is not an exhaustive genealogy. He intentionally skips all kinds of names and all kinds of generations to structure it in three patterns of 14 each. Why? Now, all kinds of crazy answers can be found if you Google this, which I do not, as your pastor, suggest you do. Uh, But there's, there's a little bit of interesting things you can... Fine, just as, as we think about this. And I think we get a hint as to why Matthew structured it the way he has in the prior verse. Look at verse 16. Um, did you notice, by the way, that verse 16 breaks the pattern of the remainder of the text? What does the, every other verse say? Verse 12, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and so on and so on. But then you get to verse 16, and we read, Jacob was the father of Joseph, and you would expect it to be, and Joseph was the father of Jesus. But that's not what it says. What does it say? He was the what? The husband, the husband of Mary. The father of Jesus is missing. Isn't that interesting? Matthew wants you to ask, who is Jesus's father? We'll come back next week and you'll find out. He's setting up verses 18 through 25 in a really brilliant way. The point is, all of this is Matthew's way of getting to his main idea. The point the 14s are making is this. Uh, You're going to have to help me maybe here, kids, do a little math. Three 14s equals how many sevens, right? Six. Six times seven, 42. 14 times three, 42. And seven in the Bible is almost always seen as the number of completion. And so Matthew, in structuring the genealogy in this way, and by saying that Jesus is the final of the 14 times three, is saying that Jesus is the the seventh seven, that was the perfect number. Think about where we see seven in the Bible. God rested on what day? The seventh day. The creation narrative is structured around seven. And uh, if you read through the Old Testament law, you'll see that every certain number of years, the, the farming community of Israel was to not plant seed in the soil and let it lie fallow so that nutrients could grow. How many years, every, how many years was that supposed to happen? Someone take a guess. Seven. And, and later in the law, in Leviticus, we see that every seventh seven, that is every 49 years, the 50th year should be what Leviticus calls a year of jubilee. And in the year of jubilee, 
all debts were to be forgiven and all slaves were to be freed. Matthew, as a Jewish man, would have known this and his audience as Jewish people would have known this. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. He is the true Jubilee who will remit all of our debt. He is the true Sabbath who will give us rest. He is the one in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. Through his birth, life, death, and resurrection, all of the gracious, faithful promises of God come true for any who will trust him. Jesus' family tree. It's unfamiliar, maybe even boring on the surface, but it teaches us about things we'll see all through Matthew. And about things to remember during Advent, the principle of grace, the principle of faithfulness, and the principle of fulfillment. Let's pray.